Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, February 27th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Hungary ratifies Sweden's NATO accession. The CIA reportedly has 12 secret bases in Ukraine. Donald Trump beats Nikki Haley in the South Carolina primary. A U.S. airman immolates himself outside the Israeli embassy in Washington. Benjamin Netanyahu vows to enter Rafah. Belarus holds a controversial parliamentary election. Thousands attend a Jair Bolsonaro rally amid a coup probe. A former colleague claims Alexei Navalny was about to be freed in a prisoner swap. Raiders kill at least a dozen worshippers in a Burkina Faso church. Meta prepares a team to counter election disinformation. And the Supreme Court hears a landmark social media free speech case. Our top story, Hungary ratifies Sweden's NATO accession. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Euronews, Reuters, The Guardian, New York Times and Forbes. Following 19 months of delays, Hungary's parliament voted 188 to 6 on Monday to approve Sweden's accession to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Hungary approved, which followed another long-awaited approval from Turkey last month, Hungary's approval, which followed another long-awaited approval from Turkey last month, means Sweden will now enter into a military alliance for the first time in 200 years, according to outgoing Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen. While Turkey delayed its approval due to concerns over Kurdish groups, Hungary, who like Turkey has closer ties to Russia than other NATO members, appeared to stall the vote over Sweden's accusations of declining democracy under Prime Minister Viktor Orban's government. Recent efforts to push Hungary included a visit by U.S. senators last weekend to condemn Orban's government, as well as a visit by Christensen on Friday, after which he announced Sweden would sell Hungary four Swedish-made fighter jets. Sweden's flag will reportedly join those of the other 31 member states later this week, including Finland, which also applied for membership in 2022 and joined the bloc in April 2023. Thank you, Scott, for presenting the facts. During this podcast, we separate the spins from the facts. The first one is the pro-establishment narrative coming from Wilson Center. NATO can now finally add Sweden's military and technological prowess to the international security bloc. Sweden is home to one of the biggest air forces in Europe, two of the leading 5G network manufacturing companies, and a robust public-private tech industry. The West is facing dangerous threats from the East, but some worries over security, at least, should be mitigated now that Sweden is part of the Atlantic Alliance. And the establishment critical narrative comes from anti-war. The U.S. and its European proxies seem to have no care for world peace. After decades of NATO expansion eastward, Russia was finally forced to stop asking and start fighting. Now that the Western military establishment has gotten the war it sought for at least 15 years, at the expense of 400,000 Ukrainian soldiers and 10,000 civilians, the bloc continues to push eastward and further antagonize Moscow. NATO expansion is a proven cause of war, so why do they keep doing it? The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative. They say there's a 7% chance that there will be a war between Russia and one or more NATO countries, but not the U.S. by the year 2035. Not trying to make light of the situation, but all these military alliances, BRICS and NATO and all these things, 
almost reminds me of the uh, the college football conference shuffling that's going on the past year or so. I think you really are trying to make light of the situation, Scott. <laughs> I mean, come on. Let's. I mean, we're all adults here, okay? I mean, the what, Pac-12. What is it, tell us what it really reminds the, you the, of. The Pac-12 is the Pac-2 now. Come on. You know, what if? <laughs> what are we doing? You know, let's just, you know, I say we shuffle the deck and just see what happens. Yeah, maybe we should go independent like Notre Dame, you know. Just roll the bones. According to a recent report, the CIA maintains 12 secret bases in Ukraine. And the facts are agreed upon by the New York Times, Euromaiden Press, and Ukrainska Pravda. As the Russia-Ukraine war entered its third year over the weekend, the New York Times reported that the CIA has maintained at least 12 secret bases in Ukraine all of them established prior to the Russian invasion. According to the report, the bases date back to February 24, 2014, eight years to the day from the start of the recent conflict when Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, who wished to maintain closer ties with the Kremlin, was undemocratically ousted from power and replaced by a pro-EU government. At first, according to the Times sources, the CIA was distrustful of its Ukrainian counterparts and, under the administration of then-U.S. President Barack Obama, were ordered not to provide aid that would contribute to lethal operations. The decision was made in order to avoid provoking Russia, it was reported. Despite reports of his affinity for Russian President Vladimir Putin, the partnership with Ukraine grew following Donald Trump's election as U.S. president in 2016, including the CIA sending Ukraine more sophisticated spying equipment. The Times said this was down to Trump appointing Russia hawks Mike Pompeo and John Bolton to key positions in his administration. Once Joe Biden came into power and the conflict subsequently began in 2022, the relationship took on a new dimension. The Times reported, quote, The old handcuffs were off, and the Biden White House authorized spy agencies to provide intelligence support for lethal operations against Russian forces on Ukrainian soil. Amid the stalling of military aid for Ukraine and the U.S. Congress, the Times has further reported that current CIA Director William Burns last week made a tenth secret visit to Kyiv in order to reassure its leaders that U.S. support for the country would stay consistent. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-Ukraine narrative on this story from Ukrainska Pravda. America has been in close partnership with Kyiv throughout this conflict at a time when many Ukrainians are wondering if the nation will turn its back on the fight against Russian expansionism. It's reassuring that ongoing links with the CIA and explicit commentary from its director have reaffirmed that aid is not going anywhere. And TASS's pro-Russian narrative says Russia has long known about CIA operations in Ukraine, and these latest public revelations are nothing new. In fact, the CIA's operations in Ukraine go back prior to 2014 and are a key reason for this conflict starting in the first place. Clearly, the West has long been entrenching its interests in the nation, undermining Ukrainian sovereignty and forcing Moscow to defensively drive potential threats out of its neighboring country. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's an 11% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict in 2024. Trump defeats Nikki Haley in South Carolina's GOP primary. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Al Jazeera, The Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and Politico. Former President Donald Trump on Saturday won the Republican primary in South Carolina with 59.8% of the vote beating former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley, who captured 39.5% of the vote. 
Trump went into the South Carolina primary with the endorsement of nearly every statewide elected GOP official and has now solidified his position as the party's likely nominee. Previously, Trump scored victories in the first three major nominating contests in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, meaning he's most likely headed to a rematch of the 2020 election against Democratic President Joe Biden. Despite not having a clear path to overtake the former president, Haley said after the South Carolina primary that she would stay in the race, at least until March 5th, Super Tuesday as it's known, because voters, she said, have the right to a real choice. Haley's campaign announced it raised $1 million after the South Carolina loss, but Americans for Prosperity, the political arm of the Koch Network, announced it would be redirecting its resources from Haley's presidential run to U.S. Senate and House races. Having swept all the major GOP contests this campaign season, Trump, facing four indictments, including two related to his alleged attempt to overturn the 2020 election, in his victory speech said, He's never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. Thanks, Scott, for the facts. The first spin is a pro-Trump narrative coming from Town Hall. Haley's communications team can put all the positive spin at once on her massive defeats, but the writing is on the wall, and Trump is the inevitable GOP nominee. She hasn't won anything this campaign season, so there's no reason to believe she'd be able to defeat Biden. She should accept Trump's victory and get behind him so the party can be unified for the general election. The anti-Trump narrative comes from MSNBC. Haley has a large following, including with independents, and a different point of view from Trump, so she should stay in this race for however long she feels is necessary to put forth her opinions and show the Republican Party that Trump is the wrong choice. Continuing to run also keeps her in the line to replace Trump should something unforeseen happen to the ex-president. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 97% chance that Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Did you happen to catch SNL this week? No, I didn't. What did I miss? So you know that movie Like Mike where the kid gets Michael Jordan's shoes and he gets Michael Jordan powers? That's a movie from like 20 years ago. Right, right. Uh, There was, you know, those Trump shoes that came out recently. Oh, yeah. They did a sketch where someone got Trump sneakers and they got Trump powers and it was was funny. Now I got to go look it up. Yeah, you should check it. It's on on you. They they put it everywhere. I missed last week's episode I'll yeah have to it was a good one, one. i mean that's it, the episode was good but that that was a real i think that's going to be a sketch people kind of remember it was a funny one it's gonna be like a cone heads yeah i mean i don't know how many times you can go back to the <laughs> trump shoes well but uh <laughs> but we'll see okay yeah. <laughs> the latest news from washington as a u.s airman immolates himself outside an israeli embassy here are the facts as agreed upon by i-24 news reuters cnn al jazeera and forbes An active member of the U.S. Air Force has died after he set himself ablaze outside the Israeli embassy in Washington on Sunday. The act appeared to be in protest against Israel's bombardment of Gaza, which has reportedly killed about 30,000 Palestinians since conflict broke out after the October 7th Hamas attack. In a video of the incident, the man, who identified himself as Aaron Bushnell, said, quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide. He also argued that his ensuing act was minimal compared to Palestinian suffering. After placing the recording device on the floor, Bushnell doused himself in an unidentified liquid and set himself alight. He reportedly shouted, quote, free Palestine until he fell to the ground. According to the U.S. Capitol's fire department, members of the U.S. Secret Service had already extinguished the flames before they arrived at the scene shortly before 1 p.m. local time. It added that Bushnell was rushed to the hospital with, quote, critical life-threatening injuries. 
While this is the first incident of its kind outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, a protester set themselves alight last December outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta. Thanks, Eric, for those frightening facts. We have a pro-Israel narrative from World Israel News. By the airman's own admission, this was an extreme act of protest. His actions stem from a misunderstanding of what's taking place in Gaza. The reality that the tragedy and loss of life in this conflict is unavoidable. With Hamas vowing to wipe out Israel, Israel is the one fighting for its survival. The Independent has the pro-Palestine narrative. This dramatic act of protest underlines the growing unrest at Israel's attacks on Gaza. Close to 30,000 Palestinians have been killed, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is still discussing launching a military operation into Rafah. This must end before more innocent lives are lost. And there's a nerd narrative from Attackulus. There's a 65% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Netanyahu vows to enter Rafah. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Associated Press, Reuters, Fox News, and Al Jazeera. After vowing Sunday that Israeli forces, regardless of the status of a potential hostage deal, would eventually enter the Gaza border town of Rafah, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Monday that Israel has a plan to evacuate civilians. U.S. officials have said the U.S. would only support a push into Rafah that entailed a plan to avoid civilian casualties. Meanwhile, Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shtayeh announced Monday he will resign from the Palestinian Authority, which partially controls the West Bank, as the U.S. pushes to reform the PA so it can potentially administer a future Palestinian state. Shtayeh called the unprecedented escalation in the West Bank and Jerusalem and the war in Gaza as the primary reason for his resignation. The West Bank has seen a surge in violence since Hamas's October 7th attack, with Israel killing around 400 people, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. In addition, Israel on Monday launched its deepest strikes into Lebanon since the war began, targeting the town of Balbik in Lebanon's eastern Beka Valley with an airstrike that killed at least two Hezbollah members. Hezbollah said it retaliated by firing 60 short-range rockets at Israeli forces in the Golan Heights. Israel said the strikes were in retaliation for Hezbollah's downing of an Israeli drone flying over South Lebanon. On Sunday, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant vowed to expand Israeli operations against Hezbollah even if a ceasefire is reached in Gaza. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed nearly 30,000 people, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation with over 1 million displaced Palestinians taking refuge in Rafah. The official Israeli death toll from October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Scott, thank you for the facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative. It's coming from CBS News. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks from Gaza or elsewhere, and the U.S. is committed to preventing malicious actors from threatening Israel's legitimate concerns. However, Netanyahu is going too far, and he must be willing to follow through on his promises to compromise on a needed truce. The Biden administration is losing its patience with Netanyahu's intransigence. And we have a pro-Israel narrative from Jerusalem Post. Israel wants nothing more than to end the war and get the hostages back. However, Iranian-backed groups made the error of believing that Hamas's October 7th terrorist massacre was an opportunity to establish new rules of engagement with Israel, displacing the country's northern communities. This status quo is unacceptable to Israel and, as Israeli officials have indicated, a ceasefire in Gaza has no impact on the Lebanese border. We come back with a pro-Palestine narrative coming from Middle East Eye. 
Because Israeli forces are committing daily massacres in the Gaza Strip, the international community must put more pressure on Israel and the U.S. to accept a permanent ceasefire. Diverging politically even from its allies, the U.S. is effectively isolating itself from its Arab partners in the rest of the world in terms of its support for Israel's slaughter. To get the hostages back, Israel must withdraw from Gaza and end the bloodshed. And narrative D comes from al Mayadeen. Even in the face of regular Israeli massacres in South Lebanon and the Gaza Strip, the Lebanese and Palestinian people only grow more resolute in their firm opposition to Israeli aggression. The U.S. must understand that supporting Israel's crimes will only lead to more escalation in the region. Hezbollah's primary goal is to end the war in Gaza, but if the U.S. and Israel continue to disregard international law, the resistance may be forced to expand its operations. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 65% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Belarus holds a controversial parliamentary election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Associated Press, and Al Jazeera. Belarus held its first parliamentary elections since 2020 on Sunday, with voter turnout reportedly at 43.64% an hour after the polls officially opened. 40% of voters, according to election authorities, cast ballots during the early voting period from Tuesday through Saturday. Officials claimed Monday that 73% of the 6.9 million eligible voters cast ballots for 110 parliament seats and over 12,000 local council seats. The only parties on the ballot were supporters of President Alexander Lukashenko, including the Communist Party, the Liberal Democratic Party, the Party of Labor and Justice, and Belaya Rus, the latter of which won 51 parliament seats. This took place after Belarusian opposition leader Vyatlana Siganovskaya from exile in Lithuania urged a boycott of the election, which she called a senseless farce. Polling places had their curtains drawn for the first time in the nation's history, and voters were not allowed to take pictures of their votes. In 2020, opposition voters were encouraged to do so to prevent ballot manipulation. Following protests over the 2020 elections, the government banned roughly a dozen opposition parties from running. Rights groups claim Lukashenko's security services also targeted the families of opposition politicians. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the New York Times. Given the history of authoritarianism under Lukashenko, it's reasonable to question election integrity. Following the 2020 election, which featured opposition participation, thousands of protesters were arrested or imprisoned. All opposition parties were banned from the next ballot, and the only politician who publicly criticized Lukashenko was forced into exile. This election needs to be deeply investigated. The establishment critical narrative comes from the Belarusian Telegraph Agency. Western countries, including the U.S., should stay out of Belarusian affairs. The sovereign legislature of Belarus oversaw this lawful, free, and fair voting process, which, to the chagrin of the U.S. Department of State, resulted in a win for pro-Belarus politicians. As the 2025 presidential election approaches, it would be best if the U.S. and its allies refrain from criticizing the electoral process of an independent country. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that Lukashenko will leave power in Belarus 
by February 2027. Not to be too critical of Belarus, but I don't think we need to be too concerned with a country that still has a telegraph agency. Exactly. I was about to say yeah. that, too. We've disbanded the Pony Express a long time ago. Like, I don't <laughs> I mean, know right. what's going on here. It's like us saying uh, American Telephone and Telegraph. Oh, is that what AT&T stands for? American <laughs> Telegraph and Telephone? I didn't know that. <laughs> you did. No, I really didn't. I did not know that. Wow. Man. Okay. If I was on um, Jeopardy, I couldn't have told you what AT&T stood for. Wow. I wonder if it still stands for that. Because like now, like KFC no longer stands for Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's just KFC. Like, I wonder if they would uh, recognize that. But at the Wait very least, at one point, that's Wait what Wait a minute. KFC stood for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, can what you believe that? You, you didn't know about? that? No. You didn't know that? What? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> you didn't know? What? No. No, man. That's, where have you I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, wow. You've been calling it Kufk. I don't yeah. know if you know where <laughs> Thousands attend a Bolsonaro rally in Brazil amid a coup probe. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Daily Wire, Associated Press, BBC News, The Times of Israel, CNN, and Al Jazeera. Supporters of former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro gathered in Sao Paulo, the biggest city in the country, on Sunday to back the right-wing leader as he faces a federal probe into an alleged coup attempt, among other allegations. According to an estimate from a research group at the University of Sao Paulo, 185,000 people joined in the rally on the main Paulista Avenue with police reporting an even larger crowd. Addressing his supporters, Bolsonaro dismissed coup allegations and claimed to be a victim of a political persecution. He further called for an amnesty for hundreds of his supporters convicted for attacks on public buildings, stating that it was time to let Brazil move on. Additionally, the former president arrived waving an Israeli flag in rejection of President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva's recent comments comparing the war in Gaza to the Holocaust. Bolsonaro, whom the Brazilian Supreme Court has banned from running for office until 2030 for abusing his power during the 2023 presidential campaign, called for this protest last week on the X, formerly Twitter, platform. Earlier this month, he had his passport seized for allegedly working on a draft decree to overturn the 2022 presidential elections, pressuring military chief to support a coup and plotting to arrest a Supreme Court justice. Scott, thanks for the facts. The Brazilian report gives us a left narrative for this story. Even if the coup failed, accountability for what happened in Brazil isn't only a matter of justice, but is crucial for the future of the country's democracy. The current investigation has revealed a coordinated, multi-pronged attempt by Bolsonaro and his accomplices to undermine the election's result. Despite the many similarities to the U.S. January 6th Capitol riots, the political influence of Brazil's military cannot be underestimated, and this is a concern that politicians must confront in the future. We have a right narrative spin from the Wall Street Journal. You don't have to be a Bolsonaro supporter to see that Lula is using the judicial system as a means to punish his predecessor. Lula is a leftist career politician who was convicted on corruption charges before they were stunningly reversed by activist judges. Right-leaning figures across the nation are being censored and checks and balances are being curtailed as the legal system is increasingly used as a weapon against opponents. We must be skeptical about charges against Bolsonaro in this environment. The nerds from Attaculus say there's a 20% chance that Brazil will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. A former colleague claims that Navalny was nearly freed in a prisoner swap. The facts are agreed upon by BBC News, X, formerly known as Twitter, The Guardian, Washington Post, DW, and TASS. Russian investigative journalist and anti-corruption activist Maria Pevchik has alleged on the YouTube channel of former colleague Alexei Navalny 
that the late Russian politician was going to be freed in the near future via a prisoner swap that was nearly completed before his death on February 16th. On February 17th, Kira Yarmish, a spokesperson for Navalny, confirmed that the Putin critic and former opposition leader had died at 2.17 p.m. local time the day prior. Navalny's team alleged that he had been murdered. Pevchik claims that the swap included FSB agent Vadim Krasikov, who is currently serving time for murder in Berlin, Germany, in exchange for two American citizens as well as Navalny. Pevchik continued that Navalny's team had attempted to negotiate an agreement for two years before presenting an offer in February that American and German officials, quote, shook hands, promised, and did nothing, and that Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich informally mediated discussions. In December 2021, Krasikov was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Georgian Chechen Zelimkan Kongoshvili in August of 2019, an action that German Foreign Minister Alma Baerbock alleged was, quote, murder by state contract, consequently expelling two Russian diplomats. Speaking to the Financial Times, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Petrov claimed that he was, quote, not aware of such agreements when asked if a deal had been negotiated for an exchange between Krasikov and Navalny. We have an anti-Russian narrative from Free Russia Foundation. It's certain that Navalny was brutally murdered, having experienced years of prison and intricate torture. Navalny stood for everything that Russia and Putin have sought to oppress, and the democratic world cannot let this crime go unpunished. Russia's people will prevail over the tyranny it currently finds itself under, and Navalny will be immortalized as a martyr who inspired a generation to hope. Global research has a pro-Russian narrative. It's no coincidence that the West has pointed fingers at the Kremlin and Putin personally over Navalny's tragic natural death, as its propaganda machine is now at full tilt to try to divert focus from defeats in Ukraine and the genocide in Gaza. If Western countries did live up to what they preached, Julian Assange, for example, wouldn't be subject to torture for exposing the U.S.'s ruthless killings. And what more? We have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 10% chance that a post-Putin Russia will substantially democratize within five years. Tragedy in Burkina Faso as a Catholic church attack kills at least 15. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Catholic News, Associated Press, ACI Africa, BBC News, France 24, and The Guardian. At least 15 people have been killed and two others injured after gunmen attacked a Catholic church during Sunday Mass in the northeastern part of Burkina Faso, near the borders with Mali and Niger. The vicar of the Diocese of Dori, Jean-Pierre Sawadogo, condemned what he described as a terrorist attack in the village of Asakan. He called for peace and security in the West African country, denouncing those who continue to wreak death and desolation in Burkina Faso. Sunday's attack is the latest in a string of atrocities in Burkina Faso that's linked to Islamic terror groups, with links to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group, which have reportedly captured large swaths of territory and displaced millions across the Sahel. Last year, the bishop of the Dori Diocese, Laurent Bifore Dabiri, voiced understanding for worshippers no longer attending services for fear of terrorist attack claiming the violence targets citizens who do not profess the same Islam as the jihadists, including Muslims. According to a report by the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, the number of people killed by jihadists in Burkina Faso has almost increased by 300% compared to the previous 18 months before the January 2022 coup. Around 64% of Burkina Faso's population are Muslims, 9% belong to traditional African religions, and 26% are Christians, comprising one of the largest Christian populations in the Sahel region. 
Scott, thank you for the facts. The first spin is narrative A coming from Crux. Not only are Christians representing about a quarter of Burkina Faso's population, but the Catholic Church also plays a vital role in providing basic health and education services. For that reason, the socioeconomic impact of the targeted attacks on Christians is devastating for an already impoverished population. The coup government has vowed to tackle the country's security problem, but the deteriorating situation proves the regime's utter failure to protect the population. It's the Christian community that's paying a disproportionately high price for this lack of security. All right, and we have narrative B from Bloomberg News. The attack is the latest evidence that Islamist extremists are intent on tearing apart the fabric of Burkina Faso society, which is known for its centuries-long peaceful coexistence of different religious and ethnic groups. However, the people of Burkina Faso will not allow their cultural heritage to be destroyed, and the government has promised to take all possible action against the perpetrators of these atrocities. Yet the recent attack also stresses the urgent need for international cooperation, as terror isn't only a challenge for Burkina Faso, but for the entire international community. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 40% chance that Burkina Faso will experience a civil war before 2036. The latest with the European Union elections as Meta readies a team to counter disinformation. The facts are agreed upon by Euractive, U.S. News & World Report, Al Jazeera, Politico, and Ipsos. Social media giant Meta on Monday announced plans to tackle misinformation and artificial intelligence, or AI, risks in the run-up to European Parliament elections in June. The owner of Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and WhatsApp will reportedly deploy its intelligence, data science, engineering, research, operations, content policy, and legal experts to battle election interference. Earlier this month, Meta joined the, quote, Tech Accord to combat deceptive use of AI in 2024 elections, which also includes Google and X, reportedly to combat AI content intended to influence voting. Meta's announcement comes days after China-based video hosting platform TikTok announced measures designed to enable EU voters to distinguish between fact and fiction on the device. Under the EU's content moderation laws, social media entities must endeavor to limit systemic risks to elections and to avoid being manipulated by bots and disinformation campaigns. According to the latest UNESCO-IPSIS Global Survey on the impact of online disinformation and hate speech, 68% of participants in 16 countries where general elections are to be held in 2024 believe social media is the widest source of disinformation. Thanks, Eric. Meta itself provides a pro-establishment narrative. Meta's actions show other social media behemoths that going hand-in-hand with democracies is the right way forward in a world teeming with various threats to government systems that value free will and choice. Though fact-checking is a small part of the larger role platforms can play in safeguarding sacred electoral processes, the government is doing the appropriate thing by taking responsibility as a stakeholder in the society under threat. And Wired gives us an establishment-critical narrative. Meta, a firm that boasts around 3 billion users across different platforms, has failed to protect users from misinformation. In the 2020 U.S. election, for instance, it allowed, inadvertently or otherwise, the false narrative of a, quote, hijacked election to spread via Facebook and Instagram. It even displayed ads questioning the election results. The company has much to answer for, and it remains to be seen whether this new commitment will result in Meta effectively squashing disinformation. And the right narrative spin comes from Fox News. 
Most people probably want to feel safe from the risk of AI, but giving big tech, and thus their friends on the left, the power to oversee election-related information will not ensure freedom or fairness. The companies pledging to safeguard democracy are the same ones that suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story ahead of the 2020 U.S. elections and kicked conservatives off of social media for their political views. They should not be given any further power. According to a nerd narrative from Mentaculous, there's a 10% chance that a major attack on voting systems in a G20 country will be widely attributed to an AI before 2025. Our final story, the Supreme Court will hear social media censorship cases. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, the Supreme Court blog, Washington Post, USA Today, New York Times, and Forbes. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday began hearing two cases regarding laws in Florida and Texas that attempt to block social media companies from banning accounts and restricting political speech. A ruling is expected by June. The two plaintiffs, the trade group's NetChoice and the Computer and Communications Industry Association, are challenging a Florida law prohibiting the permanent banning of political candidates and a Texas law prohibiting any bans based on viewpoint. The laws also require tech companies to give explanations for each case of censorship or banishment. While the trade associations argue this is infeasible, Florida claims that if they can ban hundreds of millions of posts daily, they can also explain why. This comes as separate federal appeals courts have made opposing rulings on whether these provisions violate the First Amendment. While the 11th Circuit blocked Florida from enforcing most of the bill, the 5th Circuit upheld the Texas law, which the Supreme Court put on hold in 2022. Texas and Florida represent a growing trend of conservative states trying to weaken tech companies' ability to restrict content. Meanwhile, liberal states like New York and California are passing laws encouraging censorship of what they deem violent or harmful content. Another constitutional battle at the Supreme Court over online free speech is set to start next month, as two other red states, Louisiana and Missouri, have filed a lawsuit claiming that the Biden administration colluded with social media companies to fight alleged COVID misinformation, thus breaching the First Amendment. Thanks, Scott. The first spin is a left narrative coming from Politico. The First Amendment applies to both individuals and companies, which is why social media platforms have a right to restrict harmful speech that could hurt their business, such as Nazi or terrorist propaganda. This is also a non-issue, as several new platforms have emerged specifically meant to support the right-wing ecosystem. Twitter, too, has not only become X, but also a safe haven for far-right figures. No government should be allowed to dictate how certain platforms curate their websites. Countering that with a right narrative spin from Fox News. The issue at hand has to do with being a common carrier versus a publisher. While common carriers, such as telecommunications companies, have no control over what their customers say over the phone, they're also not liable for what is said. Publishers, like newspapers, have complete control over what content they promote, but they can also be sued for liability. Big tech has enjoyed the luxury of both for years, and all Texas and Florida are asking is for them to pick one. The final nerd narrative of today's podcast comes from Metaculus, and it says there's a 25% chance that there will be fewer than six conservative Supreme Court justices on January 20th, 2025. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, February 27th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.